Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You may have heard these words before. They're from Jesus, from Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Flesh out that picture for a moment. Jesus was speaking to a church, the church at Laodicea. These were his people, and he had to say this, I stand at the door and knock. Or there's something off there, isn't there? You can read more of Jesus' evaluation of this church prior to his words here, and you'll find that the church at Laodicea became caught up in their strengths and their successes. And they were so caught up in their strengths and successes that they didn't realize their weakness. Further, neither did they realize that their own Lord was no longer present among them. Jesus had to knock on the door. But still, isn't it stunning that Jesus still knocked on the door? People forget God knocks. That cycle runs throughout the entire Bible. You read about it in places like Judges and Kings and Acts and Ephesians and Revelation. We can call this cycle revival. Now, defining what revival is is a bit like nailing down a piece of jello. Uh, Miriam Webster calls revival a renewed attention to or interest in something. We might link this word revival with other re-words that we know. So like rediscovery or renewal or recovery or reformation or reformation. While it's tricky to nail down exactly what revival is, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century Welsh preacher, he gets at the core of what revival is. He says, revival above everything else is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the restoration of him to the center of the life of the church. It's when you find this warm devotion, a personal devotion to him. In other words, in revival, the Lord takes his rightful place among his people yet again, and blessings flow. When reading the book of Exodus up to this point, we can really see that this is what the people of God needed. They needed revival. And friends, if I would wager, this is what the people of God need today, revival. Last week, Israel dethroned the one true God who saved them, who committed himself to them, and instead they put a God of their own making in his place. And this week, God reclaims their, his rightful place among them, and he heals their idolatrous hearts. God brought revival. So we're going to sum up the main thrust of Exodus chapters 35 to 40, which is what we're in today. And if summarize it in one main point, we could say this. Revival is God's gracious act to reclaim his rightful place among his people. In it, he transforms his people and previews heaven. I'll say that one more time if you're taking notes. Revival is God's gracious act to reclaim his rightful place among his people. In it, he transforms his people and previews heaven. That's more of just a summary statement. It's not really an exhortation. It's not really telling you to do anything. So maybe the first thing to do in light of what revival is, is to pray for it. To pray for it. But there are other things, other ways we can apply this as well. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at the different components of the revival that God brought to Israel at the end of the book of Exodus. 
We're gonna, those components relate to how God reclaimed his place among them, how God transformed his people, and the blessings that God brought as a result of this revival. So I pray, friends, as, as we're in Exodus 35 to 40, that we will have a renewed longing for the Lord to be the center of our lives and for the Lord to be the center of his church. And I pray also that as a result of our time together, we will have a renewed hope for God to heal even the most wicked, vile, idolatrous heart. Well, to get a sense of what's going on in Exodus 35 to 40, we have to actually go back to Exodus chapter 31. So I invite you to turn there. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, find in the rack in front of you. It's red, as you can see. Uh, you'll find Exodus 31. We're going to pick up at verse 12 on page 72. Page 72, Exodus 31. I'm going to start at verse 12. Here the Lord is speaking of the Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, we read that portion of Exodus. I want you to flip to the beginning of Exodus 35. And as we said often, is just flip into the next page, that the titles, while not a part of the original text of Scripture, they can often be helpful guides. What's the, what's the title? That bold italic print above 35. You see it in the ESV translation. It says, Sabbath Regulations. If you read through it, it's pretty much saying the same things what we just read. So what's in between all that? Between the ending of Exodus 31 and here in Exodus 35? Was well, the golden calf incident, right? It's this golden calf incident. So do you see how chapter 31 ends is the same way chapter 35 begins? It's as if God was saying, well, now where were we after this golden calf? Ah, yes, the Sabbath. Let's start back with that. The story kept going. The story kept going in spite of a major interruption. And it was more than just an interruption, right? This was a major sin. A major violation of the agreement that Israel had made with God. And we closed last week by noticing how God restored peace with his people through the leadership of Moses. And now, in chapter 35, God picks up where he left off. Peace is restored. Well, the contents of chapters 35 to 40 mainly concern the construction of the tabernacle. We studied this a couple of weeks ago and noticed the tabernacle's different parts. The tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. The God's people lived in tents among that time. And so God himself would dwell in a tent as well. But it would be a special tent. Each part of it would have a significance. 
of how people would have access to God's presence and how a holy God could dwell with a sinful people. So just basic structure of this tent. It mainly comes in three different zones. You have the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, a symbol of God's rule. And then you have the holy place outside of that, more symbols of God's presence. And then outside of that is the courtyard where you have the altars where people would have to sacrifice for their sins before they entered God's presence. Even the priests who would carry them into God's presence had a sacrifice for their own sins. So here's the tabernacle. Now, if you read chapters 35 to 40, you'll find that you'll see a lot of familiar things, things we've already seen before in Exodus. So stuff that came earlier in the book. And so we have to ask, this seems really, really repetitive and almost useless. So why include it? We even have to ask, Moses at one point in these chapters will say, he'll command other people, let's keep a record of this. Let's keep a record of this construction of the tabernacle. Well, Moses, why? We've already covered this. Well, I think there are cultural reasons why they would include the construction of the tabernacle after they've already included the details of how it's made was because law codes at the time included the people following through on whatever law they were given. But I think there's something more going on too. Stuff that seems so repetitive, the construction of the tabernacle. I think this entire section is a testimony of God's grace. And perhaps Moses knew that the record of how the tabernacle was constructed and then God's glory filling the tabernacle would be a powerful testimony of God's faithfulness to his promises and God's grace to sinful people. It would be a reminder to the later generations of God's people, us included in that, that not even a dark incident like the golden calf could prevent God from keeping his promises. It would be a reminder for God's people for generations to come that not even a dark incident like the golden calf could stop God from healing his people and setting their hearts on fire for him yet again. We read of Israel's history, and we know our own history. We know we need that reminder. We know that we need to know that God is able to bring revival. So for the rest of our time, we're going to have seven statements about revival that come from Exodus 35 to 40. Seven statements about revival, about what God did for Israel at this point at the end of Exodus. Okay? So statement number one. Revival is a result of a fresh grasp of grace. Revival is a result of a fresh grasp of grace. So you think of any construction project. A logical place to start is to determine what you need to build what you want to build. What's more, even a more logical place to start, Moses doesn't, even, doesn't only discuss what they need, he discusses where they will get what they need. They didn't have Home Depot back then. So what, the, what they needed would come from what the people already had. This is what's discussed in chapter 35, verses 4 to 18. All the materials would come from the people. You read verse 5, chapter 35. It says, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So starting in verse 20, the people get to work. And there's a theme that begins to occur. We keep on reading it over and over again. Everyone was bringing stuff. 
This kept happening. Look at verse 29. It says, All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Everyone was bringing stuff. And this happened so much, you keep on reading in chapter 36, that Moses had to put the kibosh on it. He says, okay, guys, we have enough stuff. You can stop now. We've come a long way from chapter 32 and the golden calf, haven't we? The group of people who gave gold to Aaron in order to build a false god was now giving of all that they had to build a dwelling place for the one true God. And more than that, everyone was giving. They gave more than what was needed. And they gave because they wanted to give. You see a repeated emphasis throughout this section. They gave out of their generous hearts as a free will offering. We've come a long way from chapter 32 in the golden calf. So how did they get there? What explains this transformation? Well, again, remember where chapter 35 falls within the story. After the people sinned, Moses went to God on their behalf. God forgave them of their sin and restored peace with them. He renewed his covenant he made with them. In other words, friends, the people of God here received grace and mercy. God withheld the punishment they deserved and he gave them promises they didn't deserve. So Israel's behavior in chapter 35 then shows that they really understood God's grace and mercy, that they had really received it. They had realized God had been gracious to them. Everything they had, including their very lives, they had only because of the Lord. So with hearts that were grateful and amazed by God's grace, here's what happened. They were generous, and they worked for the Lord. So here's what this shows for us. That if we want a renewed vitality to work for the Lord, to give to the Lord, we do not just need to try harder, dig deeper. No. A renewed or a revived vitality to work for the Lord comes with a new grasping of God's grace toward us. When we begin to understand God's love for us, not only will we work for and give to the Lord, but we will want to work for and give to the Lord. Friends, the Apostle Paul understood this. He wrote to the Corinthians about giving to help relieve the needs of other Christians, and he sought to motivate them by grace. You read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says in verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is how Paul is appealing to Christians to give to the Lord. He says, you know grace. Look at how much Jesus has done for you. He doesn't say, you know what, guys, I'm an apostle. You just need to hammer down and listen to me for a second. No. Jesus has given to you, so give to others. Paul knew that revival comes when we have a fresh grasp of God's grace and love for us. He literally prayed this for the Christians at Ephesus, which we read earlier. He prays that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Could have prayed, God, I pray that they just get to work. I pray that they start living right. That's, a, that's an okay prayer. But he prays what comes before that and what's the foundation of that instead. I pray that they would know how much you love them. That's our motivation. And friends, we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are to be motivated by grace because this is not the default setting of our hearts. As Christians, we so easily fall into the mindset of, I work for and give to the Lord, therefore he accepts me. Friends, that makes us anxious. It makes us rigid. It makes us insecure. It makes us quick to do anything to bolster our sense of being good enough. This is not our motivation. Instead, we're to be motivated by grace. This is the mindset of God has accepted me and forgiven me because of Jesus. Therefore, I work for and give to him. Grace is freeing. Grace makes working with joy possible. Have you understood this? Friends, if you believe this, if you want to know more about what this means, we'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. And so, friends, if we want a renewed vitality to work for and give to the Lord, let's dwell on God's love for us displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Romans puts it very simply, that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Let's dwell on that. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit would make God's love so real that it actually changes how we live. So revival is a result of a fresh grasp of grace. Statement two. Revival is done only in God's power. Look at chapter 35, starting in verse 30. Chapter 35, starting in verse 30. It says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and carving wood for every work and every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns with fine twine linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Ohaliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any of the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So, remember it was God's grace that warmed the hearts of the people to work for the Lord just out of a gratitude and out of a worship. But even in their work for the Lord, they still needed God. They still needed God for the work he called them to do because it could only be done in his power. We notice as we read, it was God who gave them the skill and knowledge and ability to do what he called them to do. God's people did God's work in God's power. You know, I think this refutes how we commonly think about revival and how we commonly think about the Christian life that we can only do 
God's work and God's power tells us that we cannot manufacture results. We cannot manufacture results with our own ingenuity. What do we mean by that? It means that we do not rely on our methods and our abilities to save people and do God's work. We rely on God to save people and do God's work. God does not need the right atmosphere to work. This is a century-old mistake, friends. Study the difference between the first and second great awakenings in American history. God does not need dimmed lights, a reflective guitar riff, and adequate parking in order to work. It's not that those things are necessarily bad. Don't hear me saying that. But they can be dangerous because we come to rely on them too much. And when we rely on them too much, we risk changing people by manipulating their emotions rather than by letting God work. And to me, I don't want to be cynical in this. I don't don't want to be cranky in this. But to me, most megachurches are more easily explained by true, tried and true pragmatic methods. There are certain things that just work. You plug it in into an affluent white suburban na- neighborhood and it just works. So they're more easily explained by that than by a movement of God's spirit. So they may have drawn big crowds, but not necessarily have spirit-transformed people in their churches. There are exceptions to that rule, I know. And it's not to say we want to work with excellence in everything that we do. But we want also to remember that the work of saving and changing lives, the work of revival, can be explained only by God, not by us. That we need God's power to do the work God has called us to. Refutes very good-sounding Christian cliches about Christian living that we hear all the time. It refutes cliches like, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. It refutes a cliche like, God gives his hardest battles to his toughest warriors. These sound really good. They look really good on a Facebook meme. But the fact of the matter is, friends, that the Christian life is more than we can handle, which is why God gives us his spirit. The key to the Christian life is not remembering how strong we are, but remembering how weak we are and how dependent we are on the Lord. So if the craftsmen of Israel were going to work for God, they had to, God had to work through them. It's no different for us. We must actively present ourselves to God so that he may strengthen us and so that he may use us. If you want to dwell on that more, read Romans chapter 6. Revival is done only in God's power. Statement three, revival brings unity. Revival brings unity. I want you to flip to chapter 38, verse 21. Chapter 38, verse 21. It says, these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. There's a couple of simple verses there. So let's rewind what we've covered so far. 
Out of God's abundant grace, God restored his people after they had sinned. And they, this gave them grateful hearts that rested in God and joyfully served him. And their service to God was not only motivated by grace, it was empowered by God's grace. He gave them strength to do it. But as God worked in them and God worked through them, there's something else to notice here. God brought them together. God brought them together. Moses led, the craftsmen executed, the people gave. Motivated and empowered by God's grace, they were united to do God's work. So friends, a true renewed, a true revived love for God and understanding of his grace will bring a love for people. When God brings revival, he brings unity in his church. We see this in the day of Pentecost. You can turn there and look for yourself in Acts 2 if you like. So many of the components of the revival we see at the end of Exodus are present in the day of Pentecost. Do you notice Pentecost began with the preaching of the gospel of grace, that Jesus' death for undeserving sinners bringing reconciliation to God? And after that, 3,000 people responded in faith in Christ, something that could be only explained by God's spirit, not by their methods. After that, what happened? Read toward the end of Acts 2, chapter, uh, verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. After all that happened, a mighty revival, God brought them together. They had a unity about them. Friends, why does this matter? Well, it matters for one because God made us for community. Maybe you know that. Maybe that's a reminder. Community is a reflection of who God is. One God and three persons. Although it's common sense, we need reminders that we can do more together than we can apart. Although it's kind of common sense, we need reminders that we need one another to live out the Christian life. But more than that, God brings about unity when he revives his people because unity is a compelling witness. Unity is a compelling witness. Israel's world is different from ours, but not different from ours in the fact that it was still full of strife and conflict and selfishness. And against this backdrop was people who were together and who worked together. And think of how much more compelling a unity among God's people can be today. Of God's people having different ethnicities and different backgrounds, different interests, different economic levels. And if they have a tangible, sacrificial love for one another, boy, that is compelling. No other power on earth can do that. When we see that, that is revival. So quote Jesus from John 13. He says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Revival brings unity. Statement four. Revival brings a return to God's word. Revival brings a return to God's word. Did you notice how Mo Moses often began a section of speech to the Israelites? You go back to chapter 35, verse 1. He says, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Chapter 35, verse 4. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Israel's revived vitality to work joyously for the Lord showed itself 
in them listening to and obeying what God said. So in restoring peace with his people, God reclaimed the center of their hearts and lives. So friends, think of how this is logical. When God reclaims the center of our hearts and our lives, it only follows that we will listen to what he says. Hearts that have a fresh grasp of God's grace have a fresh hunger for God's word. They cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 85 when he says, I will listen to what God the Lord will speak. That is a revived heart. Israel showed their love for God and their submission to God by attentively listening to, submitting to, and following his word. Friends, there are plenty of lessons from this. One of them is that we, if we want the Lord to revive our hearts and give us a fresh grasp of his grace, then we didn't need to do what Moses did. What did Moses do? Very simply, he preached the word. He preached God's word. He didn't do anything radical. He preached to the people what God said, and God worked in the people's hearts. Moses sowed the seed. God gave the increase. This is how it's always been, friends. God works through his word. He gives life through his word, which is why we are committed to preaching it. The Apostle Paul told his protege, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season with complete patience and teaching. We need patience because God often gives life through the preaching of his word, not just in a singular sermon, but over the course of decades of sermons. Romans 10 reminds us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It means when we preach the word, we will invariably speak of Jesus, the center of God's word. Jesus is how God fully and finally restores peace with his people. For Jesus died for our sins once and for all, which God confirmed by raising him from the dead. That is the main message of God's word, the Bible. And God works to give faith in that gospel message when it is preached, when it is spoken. We must hear it. So that a revival of our love for God will mean a love for his word teaches us also that we need to regularly check and make sure God's word is what is directing our lives and our hearts in our churches. That God's word is what is directing it. So friends, sometimes, sometimes, a conservative mindset can get us in trouble. Oh no. Sometimes, a conservative mindset can get us in trouble. What is conservatism at its core? Conservatism means that we are seeking to conserve something, to keep it the same. Now when would this get us in trouble? This would get us in trouble when we are seeking to conserve something that isn't biblical. If Christians conserved everything about their lives and their beliefs, then something like the Protestant Reformation never would have happened. It was Luther who tested the practices of the church at the time against Scripture. He did not conserve those. He tested them against the Word. So if we learn anything from history and ourselves, is that we have a way of straying from the Bible. We have a way of straying from the Gospel. So the Reformers said it is necessary they call this semper reformanda, always reforming, 
always reforming according to the word of God. Revival brings a return to God's word. Statement five. Revival brings a thoughtful obedience. Revival brings a thoughtful obedience. Not only did Israel return to listen to God's word, they were careful to obey God's word. Through the descriptions of the various construction phrases, you can read through them from the curtains to the frames to the items that went into the tabernacle to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle to the garments that the priests wore, you'll find a certain phrase over and over again. They made blank as the Lord commanded Moses. There's a nice summary of that in chapter 39, verse 32. It says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Where we've been so far. The fresh grasp of God's grace to them brought a hunger for God's word, a work explained only by God. And when we see the careful obedience Israel, of Israel to do all that the Lord had commanded, it shows that their gratitude for God's grace, their hunger for God's word, actually made a difference in how they live. Their gratitude for grace, their hunger for God's word, actually made a difference in how they live. They were not hearers of the word only. They were doers of the word. One place where the Lord brought revival was Abarivan, Wales commonly referred to as Sandfields. It was there where Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we referenced at the beginning of the sermon, was a pastor from 1927 until 1938. Martin Lloyd-Jones was thoroughly committed to the preaching of God's word, and it got to the point where something like their prayer meetings had to be stopped early because so many people kept on praying. It got to the point where their other services were starting to fill up hours in advance. But Lloyd-Jones' wife, Sally, tells the most remarkable thing that happened at Sandfields. You can read more of it in her short book, Memories at Sandfields. Sally recalled how alcoholism was widespread in Sandfields, largely because the dock workers there were given liquor in addition to their wages. But when God began to save these dock workers one by one, they were transformed by his grace. That through Christ they were forgiven, through Christ they were restored, through Christ they had this newness of life. And this made an actual difference for how these dock workers lived. They would come to Martin and Sally's house with their bottles of liquor and give them to them because they couldn't trust themselves to keep it in their homes. And so when Martin and Sally finally ended uh, their time at a Abaravan, uh, they had a giant cabinet full of liquor bottles. So they had a predicament on their hands. So that God brings this kind of careful obedience is a reminder that faith in Jesus looks like more than raising your hand at the end of a message, and it looks like more than walking an aisle. Friends, it might start there, but it does not end there. Faith in Jesus means following him. It means that we will continue to be so amazed by God's grace that we want to obey the Lord in every area of our lives. Revival brings a thoughtful obedience. Statement six. 
Revival's goal is God's glory. Revival's goal is God's glory. So the people finished the work. They constructed everything. It was ready to be put to use. What happens after that? Having pitched the tent for the first time, listen to what God told Moses in chapter 40, verse 9. He says to him, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. The construction of the tabernacle, it was a big-time work. It required everyone pitching in. It required skilled labor. It required this careful obedience. And when Israel had finished, how easy would it have been for them to be very self-congratulatory? Man, look at how far we've come in just a short amount of time. Look at what we've built. This would have been the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. You remember him from the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar looked over his kingdom and he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? We are not immune to the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome because it is the human syndrome. We take credit for what God alone deserves credit for. So what happens, unfortunately, to many churches that grow large, and even it can happen in small churches as well, is that they begin to revolve around a single person in a very unhealthy way. Where kid, real life example, where kids in children's church color pictures of the senior pastor. Where a single person can turn quickly over to pride, screaming at leadership, threatening leadership, manipulating book sales, etc. Contrast to that. When God does a real work of revival, the people give glory to him, not themselves. This is why God told Moses to devote the entire tabernacle to him. Israel devoted their work to God, not them. So brothers and sisters, no matter our size, no matter the results, all that we do is for God's glory, not our own. What we do, we do for the Lord, so that his name will be lifted up, not ours. After all, remember what Paul said, are we the ones who died and rose again? No. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Revival's goal is God's glory. Statement seven, last one. Revival is a taste of heaven. Revival is a taste of heaven. Let's pick up the passage, chapter 40, verse 33. At the very end of it, end of the book. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gates of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all the generations, all their journeys. This is the moment in Exodus that the people have been waiting for. 
The whole story began, you will remember, with people dwelling in clouds of darkness, enslaved in Egypt, not knowing what God was doing. And now God dwells with them in the form of a cloud. It's a recreation of the Garden of Eden. You can see different parts to it. The Spirit of God overseeing God's dwelling place with man. And Moses could look at all of it at the, uh, in chapter 39 and call it good. So the moment they had been waiting for was the moment that they would receive the greatest blessing of all, God himself. But the final moment of Exodus is not just a recreation of Eden. It's also an anticipation of what's to come. As great as this final moment is, there is something better yet to come. God's glory dwells the tabernacle. Did you notice something? Moses couldn't go in. God's glory is there, but Moses couldn't enter. That's because in order to enter God's glory, there must be sacrifice. You know, originally the first five books of the Bible were one unified whole. They weren't divided into those five separate books. So it's interesting then that the book of Leviticus begins with an invitation to approach God through sacrifice. Later, the Bible will say that there is one final perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who died on the cross in our stead. Because Jesus goes in our place, we can approach God with confidence that we will not be cast out. God filling the tabernacle points us forward, not only to see that it is Jesus who gives us access to God, but also that in Jesus God has entered the world, not just in a tent, but in human form. God the Son took on human flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And he continues to dwell in us, his people, through his Spirit. And God dwelling with us now means that he is still at work, still at work among us to revive us, to give us a fresh taste of his grace over and over again, to anchor us in his word, to bring us to follow his word in thoughtful obedience. He is still at work to do that. He dwells in us. But God dwelling with his people, and now God dwelling with us, reminds us that there is a greater day ahead. Friends, a day when we will no longer need revival because we will dwell with God face to face. That's how the Bible closes. I'll read from portions of Revelation 21 and 22. We'll close with this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be them, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on his foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, 
we ask that you would revive us again. Revive us, your people, in this place at Old Oak Bible Church. And revive your church across the United States and across the globe. Revive us to grasp and take hold of that you are real. That your love for us is far more than we can imagine. And that your grace to us is flowing oceans deep. And from that, God, bring us a hunger for your word. Bring us a desire to obey your word. Bring us unity. Bring us a desire for your glory. And God, help us to hope in heaven where we will dwell with you face to face. We thank you that this hope is secured because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.